Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth and Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening in Toronto and Ottawa in Ottawa at 95.7 and in Toronto at 106.5. And you could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country if you've downloaded that app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM. You could be listening on your device of choice across the country. And uh, this morning on the show, we have a couple of guests. Our first uh, half hour is going to be speaking with Nick Nanos. He is the chief data scientist and founder of Nanos Research, one of North America's premier research and strategy organizations. And in the second half of the hour, we are going to be talking to author Richard Van Camp about his latest uh, publication called Moccasin Square Gardens. And I uh, I urge you to stick around and listen to that. I'm sure it's going to be very interesting. The title gives you some kind of an insight into this man's thinking. And I can tell you the short stories are quite fascinating. At this time, though, I would like to welcome to our program on the line, and I believe he's calling from Ottawa, uh, Nick Nanos. Good morning, Nick. Hey, David. Great to join you and your listeners. Yeah, and if I may say, I'd like to add a couple new words to our uh, our greeting this morning. So um, uh, I, I just, uh, you know what, I went blank now, of course. I've gone blank. Um, so um, I'll come back to that, I guess. But welcome to the show. <laughs> Great to join you. So, Nick, um, listen, first of all, before we get into some things, can you tell me, how does someone end up in the line of work like you do in, in research? How did you get interested in that? How about a complete fluke? Like <laughs> is like that. People okay. don't grow up thinking that they want to be a researcher or a pollster or anything like that. And, uh, you know, I was in school and uh, studied math, studied politics, history, and uh you know, it was just a, an area that I took an interest in. I ended up doing a survey uh, as a favor for a, for a friend of mine, and I think he said, "Hey, I think you might be good at this." Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, no no offense to any of the lawyers that are your listeners. I don't know, David, if you're a lawyer, but I was supposed to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And uh, my Greek mother cried when I told her that I was going to be like a consultant doing stuff like that. She was like, "Can't you have a real job like a lawyer or a teacher or?" A, dentist or something like that so so it took a while for her to come around because she's my mother's very traditional mm. in terms of uh, what's an acceptable job but uh, I love what I do I learned something I'm an expert at what I do but I learned something new and I have a significant amount of respect for the views of uh, of people and uh, the complexity of views that they have on pretty important issues I, I guess that's part of the interest with with what you do, isn't it? You are constantly learning and being exposed to things that probably, in some ways, when you're doing these things, uh, people are saying things that you might not have thought of in the process. Yeah, and uh, I think there's there's a tendency. We all have a tendency to think that everyone everyone thinks the way we do. Mm. And uh, you know, when you when you think of it this way, when you spend your whole day listening to people and how they feel about things and what their hopes are, what their fears are, what they want from our leaders, it's uh, it's very humbling. And you, you really realize that there's a diversity of opinion out there um, and uh, and it's real. So, you know, when people are worried about the future, uh, when they're worried about the environment, um it really, uh, it really comes through, and you know, I think if 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 we were to sum things up, you know, for a lot of people, if they were to give a message to our leaders, is don't mess things up. You know, I want to have a future that uh, I can be hopeful on, and a future where my kids can uh, can have a, a good life. Mm. 
Can you share perhaps uh, one of the one of the, the the most unusual kind of things that you learned from a, from doing a survey or from doing some research? Among the most unusual things, yeah. well, I'm not sure if it's uh, I'm not sure if it's uplifting or not, or whether I'm going to depress your listeners. But <laughs> recently, we've been kind of asking people to describe the emotions that they feel when it comes to the government in Ottawa. So it's not about any political party and not about any political leader, but just the emotions. So you know, what emotion do they feel when they think of the government in Ottawa? And uh, you know, I, I thought it would be this type of research is starting to be done in a lot of other countries for people to understand some of these, you know, what's going on in politics and civil society. And, you know, in the survey that we did, about 29% of uh, Canadians would use the word anger to describe the emotion that they feel about Ottawa. And then after that, 28% pessimism, 14% satisfaction, 12% were optimistic. And, you know, these negative emotions are actually on the increase. And I think this speaks to, you know, there's a an increasing number of Canadians that feel that our politicians and our system are letting us down, that they're not thinking about the future, that uh, they are too focused on today. And, uh, and we're seeing more and more kind of negative, negativism and anger when people just think about the system. And I just, I just put it in this context. For Canadians, you know, they grow up, they go to school, Maybe they go to college or university. They have a job, a part-time job when they go through college or university. They work really hard. They do everything right, and then they can't pay their bills, or they struggle to pay their bills, or if a paycheck is late, it's a big problem. And, uh, you know, that frustration that, you know, we're not talking about people getting rich. We're talking about people just having a regular life, that they there's difficulty and anxiety related to that, um, is is out there and it's not just some people it's a significant number of people um is actually quite striking to me because we have to remember you know we i always look at it this way we you walk down your neighborhood or if you're in your community according to our research about six out of every 10 canadians think that the next generation will have a lower standard of living and the next and only 15% or thereabouts think that the next generation will have a higher standard of living. So imagine you're at the community center and you're watching your son and daughter and they're at their soccer practice or hockey practice or they're doing an activity and if you look around the room 6 out of every 10 of your neighbors and maybe you're one of them think, "You know what? I'm not sure if my son or daughter is going to have the same type of standard of living that I have whether they can own, live in my house because they might not be able to afford the property taxes. And I think for me as a researcher, this is among the more interesting things because it's like you see people outside and everything looks good, but inside it's just not that good. Can that be simplified uh, when you give those numbers about, you know, percentages of who's satisfied, who's not satisfied, who who thinks they will be have a, a greater or, or a lower standard of living um, we all know about about the uh, the one percent, the ten percent kind of uh, you know lifestyle that that people are. Uh, and can you simp- can you simply break that down to say those people that are in the one percent or the ten percent are the ones that are thinking a bit they're going to have a better future for their kids? Yeah, well, that you know, I think if you're in the I think if you're in the one percent, you probably think that your kids are going to have a better future, or you're just naturally optimistic. Mm. You know, they're in the same way. You know, there are people that are naturally pessimistic. There are people that are naturally optimistic. No. But, you know, the thing is, is it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, is it acceptable as a society if more than a majority of people in the society look to the future 
and think that it will be worse. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, when you think of the last hundred years, especially in the post-war era where the economy was strong, there was an attitude that, you know what, my son or daughter, they can have the same things that I have, mm. or there's a good chance that they could even have a better life. Um, and uh, so I think that's, that's the fundamental disconnect. And what's on top of everything is, is just a sense that you do, you're doing everything right. You're working hard. Maybe you have two, two jobs, but you just can't, can't get ahead. And I think it's, it's that anxiety that uh, is the most worrisome and is of interest to me in terms of putting a spotlight on. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were you were talking earlier about people's anger towards the government in Ottawa, I, I was wondering if that is directly related to the governing uh, government. Is that what it usually is? It's toward. It's not just all of Ottawa government. It's the party yeah. in power. Is that correct? That's part of it. Yeah. So you know, we don't. We try not to put. Uh, whenever we do something like this, we don't like to put a particular political party's name or mm-hmm. a particular politician in it. Mm-hmm. So. So this would be kind of like, you know, people thinking, Ottawa, just out of touch. They don't get it. They're messing things up. They're not focused on the important issues. And uh, I think that's that's probably what we get. But, you know, to your point, David, uh, it does include, and we have to assume that it does include people that when they think of Ottawa, they automatically think of the Liberal government or they automatically think of Justin Trudeau. But Mm. we didn't want to put that in the question. Yeah, so that we could get a bigger sense, of course, uh, sense of things, and it'll be interesting, you know, in the future when we do this, because someday there will be another government, other than Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. We don't know when that might be, uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see whether are people still as pessimistic and angry, or does it change potentially mm-hmm. uh, if there was a change in government? You know, as you were saying that, the, the, when you said uh, people's anger, they're angry about about the government focusing on today. I didn't think you were going to say today. <laughs> The word that came to my mind was focused on themselves. <laughs> yeah, focus on themselves and trying to win an election, you mean? Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's like everything. When people, uh, you know, I, th- I think it would be fair to say that for, for a lot of voters, what they'd like to know is who's thinking about the future mm. uh, and that they see politicians that are focused on, on winning the next election mm. and staying in power. And, you know, that's fair because that's part of our system. But, you know, they'd probably be a little more comfortable if they felt that governments were making long-term decisions and there are people thinking about not just the next six months when there will be an election or the next four years, but who's thinking about 10 years and 20 years and on a long-term view on how we can all make a living, how we can have a sustainable uh, economy, what our environment is going to be like. What type of quality of life of our children going to have, and to, and to think about those issues just so that people feel uh, feel comfortable. And you know, it comes down to people don't expect any promises, but they at least want to feel that there's hope and someone's thinking about these things. True enough. True enough. Uh, people do want to get on with their own lives. They do want to feel that they're making some headway uh, towards a better future, and and for themselves uh, and for their children, like you said. Um, I, I think that that I'm wondering to what extent. Our our now changing climate uh, is, you know, rearing its head and telling us that we can't continue in the way with, that we are uh, is is affecting people's thinking as well. Do you have any data or sense of that? Yeah, well, you know, whenever we poll on the environment, not a big surprise. It always uh, scores really well, but many times it's it slams up against uh, people's economic anxiety. So, you know, mm-hmm. for example, when 
you know, when people would think about a carbon tax um, and or action that should be taken to potentially try to change behavior, they, you know, they want action, but then when they have to pay for it, they kind of recoil a little bit. And that's, you know, the problem is, is that people are both, you know, citizens, but at the same time, they're consumers. And, uh, you know, that's the problem. But, you know, the thing is, is that, um, here's a little bit of trivia. The country in the world that's most likely to talk about the weather, Canada. You know, other countries mm-hmm. talk about politics. Other countries talk about sports. They talk about all kinds of things. But uh, for Canadians, we're the one country that we're most, most likely to talk about the weather. And uh, we're seeing weather change and weather variation. So let's set aside the charged political rhetoric on climate change and global warming. I think if you ask an average Canadian, they would recognize the weather's changing. Storms are getting worse. You know, the storm of the century is now no longer the storm of the century, but happens more frequently. But, you know, I think the fundamental challenge is, is that we're trying to, we're trying to manage, uh, we're trying to manage a changing environment and what we have to do, but we're not, but we're not getting to the fundamental problem of how do we, how do we kind of respond to climate change? And just to use an example, um, you know, I was uh, at a, I was, I was at a place that was a, a vineyard, and they were talking about how they're looking at climate change and how they would have to, to move where they plant, because in 20 years it could be warmer where they are. Mm. And then I was thinking, oh, okay, well that sounds good, but how about getting to the root problem? That's another alternative to figure out what we need to do today to make sure that we have the environment that we need and that works in the future. And I think, uh, I think right now we're in a zone where we're just trying to manage climate change. I think at some point, and I hope it doesn't take a significant catastrophe or threat for this to happen, but at some point we actually have to move to more meaningful action. But for this to work, people have to feel like they can participate. You know, the government can't regulate climate change away. They need average citizens to participate in the solution, and people want to participate. They just don't know how. Well, if I can extend that, I, I think that it, uh, I think it goes beyond the average person. I think that uh, businesses, uh, large businesses uh, of all kinds, have to get behind this as well, because in yep. many in many cases, they're the ones holding the power, and they're the ones that can do something about it in, in on large scale. Um, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's very interesting to hear this the, these these things. And um, and Nick, the other thing I wanted to say to you was Yasu. That's what I was trying to think of because I couldn't, couldn't Yasu, remember. Yasu, that's right. Yasu, that's a, welcome. With, yes. So uh, you know, and uh, and I always say that because my wife is Greek, so I've I picked up a few of the sayings over the years. So excellent. So listen, um, you know, you you want to talk about the specifically the the conservatives and the liberals and and sure. uh, the polls that you've you've done recently on that. Yeah, so, you know, what we've seen, like all of the other pollsters, is the Conservatives have the upper hand when it comes to the national numbers. You know, for us, it's uh, like 35, 32, 16 for the New Democrats, 10 for the Green. Uh, you know, the Greens just won a by-election yesterday mm-hmm. uh, with 38% of the support in the riding in British Columbia. So that's very good news for the Green Party of Canada. In that same by-election, the Liberals actually only registered 11% support. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not a great night for the uh, for the Liberal Party. But, you know, in our polling, you think of the last federal election, the Greens got about somewhere between 4 and 5% support. Now they're at 10%. Mm. Um, the Greens could end up being, and, you know, they've, they've won uh, now seats in legis- provincial legislatures in, in British Columbia, 
Ontario, New Brunswick, and uh, now they're the official opposition in Prince Edward Island. Yes. And uh, the Greens could be kind of like Canada's positive version of a populist party, mm. where for people that are disappointed with the Liberals and disappointed with the Conservatives and the New Democrats, that maybe they'd look at the Greens as an alternative to say, let's send a message to Ottawa that things need to change, but let's send not someone that's angry, but let's send uh, let's send the Green Party because because uh, we have trust in them. Yeah. So uh, so we're seeing an, an, a very interesting dynamic, and you know on the on the leadership front, you know Justin Trudeau. When you look at the the long term trend line related to people's perceptions of him, is you know during the election he performed well in the election, he won the election. The first two years of his mandate were different than other governments. People were generally satisfied, and his numbers went up dramatically. And what we've seen in the last two months is that he has wiped out all the equity that he has built yeah. since the last federal election, and he's back. He, he's back to a level before the election when he was in third when it comes to uh, people's perceptions of him. And, um, and you know, so we're seeing right now, you know, a federal liberal government led by Justin Trudeau where, you know, the prime minister's political coattails are not that long right now. And, uh, you know, the liberals don't have that advantage that they enjoyed in the past. Mm-hmm. That's very, yeah, that's very true. Um so going back to the Green Party, and as you're rolling this into the, 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 the by-elections and things that have happened recently, um, if the, if the, what do you think your sense is from, from your line of work that how a Green Party would be accepted by the business community? Well, you know, the, to the Green Party's credit, uh, they have focused on environmental issues, but they have been, I would call them moderate on a lot of other issues. It's kind of like they've done a good job at balancing principles, Green Party principles related to environmental stewardship, looking at kind of progressive politics, but then uh, not being uh, overly radical. You know, um, you know. That said, you know, Elizabeth May was arrested for kind of protesting uh, in British Columbia, but not uh, not not the type of radicalism that people would associate with those types of parties. Mm. So you know, I think the. Uh, I think the Green Party so far has has done a, a fairly decent job. That said, as they get more and more support, and as they become more of an option for voters, at least at the riding level, there will be greater scrutiny on their platform. Mm. So we'll have to wait and see what type of platform that Elizabeth May and her team put out, and uh, see whether it is basically a progressive platform that has environmental principles embedded in it. Um, and uh, and you know I think one of the things that that people like about the Green Party is that they're not seen as being as partisan as some of the other parties mm. that are running very negative campaigns and then kind of engage in mudslinging. So uh, so you know for Elizabeth May she's been building on a brand that she has uh, been incrementally you know improving over a long period of time. So, Nick, now the Green Party um, is is also in other countries, correct? And it's done quite well, yep. if I believe, in other countries. Yeah, it's just it's recently done very well in Germany in the German election. Uh, they're also a factor in uh, French politics. Uh, but uh, you know, it's, there are other kind of uh, there are a number of other countries where the Greens are are historically doing better than they have in the past. Mm-hmm. So, looks like Canada is part of that that 
global trend. Is, is there any connection at all between countries with the Green Party? Are they all running on similar platforms, or is there are they all independent in terms of the country they're in? They're generally. I'm not an expert on the Green Party, but mm-hmm. uh, my sense is that they're generally independent, and each of the each of the Green Parties in countries kind of uh, reflect the the specific country uh, orientation. So, for example, uh, you know, the Green Party in uh, in in Germany. Uh, is uh, very environmental, advocated for the closure of uh, nuclear power uh, for uh, coal plants, mm. right? Mm. And Germany, is, sh- as part of a coalition, they managed to get uh, the Merkel government to uh, to give a commitment to close all the fire coal burning plants, which is, if you know anything about German history, you know, coal was actually part, a big part of the, their industrial base. So... Uh, but every country, uh, every country is different in terms of the of, in terms of the green movement. They're, they just share a common commitment to thinking about the economy, uh, the environment. That is as a top issue. Mm. Uh, Nick, that's a great place uh, to take a pause. We just have to take a break, and we will be right back. So please stay on the line. You are listening to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We will be right back after this with Nick Nanos. He is the uh, chief data science, scientist and founder of Nanos Research. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Moment of Truth and Element FM. On the line uh, from Ottawa, we have Nick Nanos. He's the chief data scientist and founder of Nanos Research, one of North America's premier research and strategy organizations. Uh, you can uh, probably see his uh, the Nanos research on, on many of the surveys and research uh, that is done online uh, when you see a lot of these surveys. So they're quoted quite a bit. So I want to say Yasu and Calamari uh, to uh, Nick, who's on the line. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, Nick, it's great to have you on the line once again, and um, and it, it's really interesting to talk about these these things that you you are uh, dealing with. Um, so, Nick, in terms of other trends and those kind of things that we can anticipate to see looking ahead, as we we said into the election, what's your what's your sense on that? Well, you know, I think uh, you know what's in, what's if we if we remember the 2015 election, the one thing that was very unique and different about the 2015 election is that the party that won actually ran on a baz- positive platform, did not engage in negative attack ads or negativism, and uh, that was among a number of things. One of the things that people liked, it looked like they wanted to do things differently, that they they had a different style, that they were open, uh, that they were positive, and. Uh, you know, fast forward now, and I don't think we're going to see the same sort of uh, positive, exclusively positive message that we saw in the past. So uh, if I'm sorry if your, your listeners might be disappointed, but I expect this uh, upcoming election to, to, be very, uh, to be very negative, to have lots of mudslinging as the liberals try to hold on to power and the conservatives try to take power away from them. We've already seen the conservatives... Uh, launch attack ads, and we've seen the uh, liberals take much more of a harder edge than we have seen them in the past. And uh, I would say those sunny ways, happy days, <laughs> and positive ways are out the window uh, <clears throat> when we think of the next election as the liberals try to hold on in a very difficult situation. And I, I'm not really surprised to hear you say that. I was actually wondering about how the liberals were going to uh, approach this this election coming up just because of you know, unfortunately, due to all the negative uh, press they've had and the things that have not worked out as uh, they planned and the unforeseen events that have taken place uh, concerning them. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. And I was wondering if uh, if that was going to happen. 
Um, yeah. How do you think that the power, the, the at least the, 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 the uh, sense of, of things and how things are shifting, uh, you know, even provincially? From from uh, you know with the, with the recent elections in in provinces of of the conservatives, you know, like if you if you rewind back to 2015, <clears throat> you have to remember that so the liberals won the won the won the federal election, and then at that time, the liberals were in power provincially in Quebec, they were in power in Ontario, they were in power in New Brunswick, in power in uh, British Columbia, even though it's a different kind of liberal party. The New Democrats were in power in uh, in Alberta, and uh, they looked pretty red. Mm. Canada looked pretty red federally and provincially. And, uh, you know, fast forward now and, you know, Quebec, Ontario, New Brunswick, and uh, Alberta and British Columbia have all fallen. Mm. Uh, and, you know, what in the first part of the mandate, what would, you know, the first part of the Liberal mandate, at least, there was kind of what I'll say cooperation between the provinces generally and the federal government, because they were all of like mind, so to speak. Mm. Uh, fast forward now, and the premiers are basically um, opponents. Yeah. You know, they are disruptors. Mm. You know, we look at Doug Ford in Ontario, Jason Kenney in Alberta. Uh, they're the leaders of, uh, you know, so to speak, of, uh, of, of governments that actually have, don't see the federal government as a positive partner, they see the federal government as a problem. They disagree with uh, policies of the federal government, and they're basically a thorn in the side of Justin Trudeau. So, you know, we've gone from a situation of potential harmony and uh, goodwill between the provinces and the federal government to uh, one where there's uh, there's now a significant amount of friction. So, you know, part of the part of the narrative, I guess you'd think, is you know how well is Canada working? Well, not that well right now because there's a significant amount of disagreement between the provinces and the federal government on a lot of big issues like the carbon tax and pipelines. Yeah, I was going to say that, and and unfortunately, because of that not working well, uh, you know, uh, we we the 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 everyday person seem to be bearing the brunt of it. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of like. I'd hate to say this, and I'm sounding kind of a bit uh, negative, but we're hostages. Canadians, every single Canadian citizen is hostage to politicians. You know, we uh, watch them try to advance public policy issues. Um, It's a very complicated situation that everybody is kind of operating in, and that's all we see ourselves as is uh, on the receiving end of, you know, either not enough action on things like climate or, you know, things that don't help the economy. So, you know, it's just, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise when, you know, a lot of people think that the system's just not working uh, and that they point to politicians and they point to Ottawa as uh, being symbolic of that, of that dysfunction. And I guess the other thing is that, um, you know, when you mention hostages or hostages to them, uh, the first thing that comes to me is, isn't this supposed to be democracy? But the other thing that comes to mind is also that, that, you know, it's really easy to, uh, to use other people's money to uh, to to challenge things, <laughs> you know, and yeah. and they're using public purse money to challenge each other, and and when it, when we could really use this money for other things, which is unfortunate. So. Well, exactly, and you know the thing is, is you know whenever we uh, you know whenever we do a polling on taxes, mm. um, 
you know, what's interesting is is that, you know, if you just do a survey and you ask people, do you want your taxes to go down, everybody says yes. Uh, but then if you ask, uh, what about health care? What about social programs? What about schools? What about infrastructure? And uh, then, you know, the numbers turn when people are provided with choices. And I think maybe that's one of the maybe that's one of the problems that we have in our democracy right now. You know, politicians are very easy to kind of advance something, but they don't kind of clearly explain what the choices are. So, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, if you're a, if you're a Green Party enthusiast, realistically, what you want to say is, we have two choices. We can do something about climate change now, or we can live a different kind of life that might not be very pleasant in the future that kind of puts our future at risk. And, uh, and and to kind of for politicians to actually and openly put here are the choices you know if you're a conservative and you believe that taxes should be cut you shouldn't just say we're going to cut taxes you should say we're going to cut taxes and because we're going to cut taxes we're going to cut other programs because the money has to come from someplace right. but politicians don't usually want to tell you or they're not hot on telling you what the choices are no but they're good at telling you what the solution is without telling you what the repercussion is. Yes. And I think if we could have the politicians just basically treat Canadians the way they would if they were talking to their neighbor or their son or daughter or their sister or brother and say, hey, we're gonna, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. And just be upfront, and then let Canadians decide and take those sacrifices on if they think that it's important enough. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, I think you're right. I think, unfortunately, though, it's kind of like the, the weakest link. Uh, you know, if one party were to start doing that, uh, that would become uh, fuel for another party to slam them or take it apart or, you know, yeah. and unless everybody's on board, uh, it's it's not going to work. And, and that's unfortunate because I think that's why we hear, oh, you know, if you want change, vote for us. Well, what does that even mean? And people, they've been saying that for forever, you know? Exactly. Um, so it's unfortunate. I want to come back to, to what you were saying about, uh, and, and looking ahead to the, the election again, about your sense of how people vote. And what I mean by that is, do people generally vote for something or against a party? You know what I'm saying? There's that, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, the mo- I think uh, in this environment, um, they're mostly voting against it. You know, historic so when I was a student and we'd look at the the polls, there is there was a significant proportion of Canadians that voted for something and it usually either was a leader or a party because they had party loyalty. It might have been the party that they've always supported or that their parents supported or, or whatever. And they'd always felt that they were voting for something. Fast forward now and it's like political survivor island. They're voting against uh parties where you know, in the and there's a significant proportion of Canadians in the last election who wanted change, uh, and they and and felt that the Conservatives have been in power for too long, and they wanted change, and they basically looked around their local riding to fig, to try to figure out who they could vote for to get the Conservatives out of power. So it had nothing to do with with the Liberals or the New Democrats. They were just looking at and in our polling, Tom Mulcair could have won the last election. Uh, he started off the last election in a very good position. It's just when people, his performance in the first part did not meet expectations. And, you know, for him it's unfortunate because he was very effective in the House of Commons. You know, he managed to succeed Jack, uh, Jack Layton, who had done very well, and managed to, and uh, Tom Mulcair managed to kind of continue to build on Jack Layton's success. But in the first part of that 
2015 election when people were thinking, hey, maybe we should have an NDP government. Uh, he just did not, for whatever reason, perform as well as people had hoped, mm. and people passed over him. So you know, right now, I would say the fundamental frame is, who can we punish, or who do we stop mm. from getting in mm. power? Mm. Um, and that those are more likely, sadly, those are more likely to be motivators than, I really like this leader, or I like the platform of this party. Mm. Those things are still important, but they're less important than right. in the past. Right. Now, uh, we have time for one more question, if you don't mind, and that is, sure. I'd like to find out about um, your sense of, of reliability or why sh- how much weight should we put on polling. We saw some, some strange things happen in the U.S. Uh, you know, in yep. recent times with that. So what's your, you know, what are those, what are those, um, those things that sort of can, can throw this, you know, off, off kilter for you? Yeah. So, uh, first of all, there are a number of things. So there are a number of challenges. One of the challenges is converting popular support where we kind of say conservatives at 35%, uh, into ridings. Mm which are actually so trying to figure out how many ridings and who's going to form a government. To put this into context, the Liberals in the last election won 39% popular support, but they won more than 50% of the seats. So converting polling numbers into ridings is difficult. And, you know, in the last U.S. election, once all the ballots were counted, the pollsters were actually absolutely correct in the popular vote, but the ability to convert that into the Electoral College failed. Mm. So that's one of the problems. The other problem, and you know what, when someone goes up to me and says, hey, Nick, you know, the only poll that counts is the one on election day, they're usually surprised when I say, yeah, you're right. The only one that does really count is the one on election day. But up until the election day, we're just, you know, we're, tr- we're looking at what the trend might be. Right. And, uh, you know, if I look at elections, every every election that we've done polling in, the only poll that I really know is going to reflect the outcome is the one that's done the night before the election. Mm. Because it's kind of like, David, it's like Christmas shopping. Some people Christmas shop like way before December, some in the beginning of December, some in the middle of December. There are people shopping in the last weekend before Christmas. And then there are the people that are very stressed that are on Christmas Eve down at the mall trying to buy something for their loved one. Politics is a lot like that in making vote decisions. People that know in advance where they're going to vote, doesn't matter what's going to happen. Some people that wait till the debates, some te- people that wait till the last w- weekend. And then some people literally, I think it's about 7 or 8%, go into the booth and are figuring out who they're going to vote for, mm. for sure. So, uh, so the numbers are volatile. And, you know, if you look at polls, you should take them all, including the Nanos ones, with a grain of salt, except for the ones that are done the night before. You should look at the ones at the night before, and I'll tell you, 19 times out of 20, those polls that are done the night before reflect and accurately capture generally the outcome of the election. But two days before, not 100%. Three days before, not at all. So you have to be very careful. <laughs> well, Nick, I thank you for that analogy. You've given me a whole new way to think about uh, uh, polling and, and elections and, and many things. So it all comes down to the last-minute shopper. That's <laughs> <laughs> Nick, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming and, and talking with us today. And it's been uh, a pleasure speaking with you. I hope we can do this again sometime. 
You bet. Thanks a lot, David. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. We have been talking with Nick Nanos. He is the chief data scientist and founder of Nanos Research, one of North America's premier research and strategy organizations. We're going to take a short break, and we will be right back on the line again with, I believe, someone from Ottawa. We will have Richard Van Camp on the line, and he is going to be talking about his new uh, book that's coming out, uh, short stories, Moccasin Square Gardens. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Moment of Truth and Element FM. You are listening in Toronto and Ottawa. In Ottawa, 95.7. In Toronto, 106.5. You could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app. And if you download that app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM, you could be listening on your device of choice right across the country. I would like to welcome on the uh, line, uh, actually from our Ottawa studios, unfortunately uh, we can't get him uh, through uh, another way, this is just on the line from our studios, we have Richard Van Camp, he is a master Indigenous storyteller and best-selling author, and he captures the shifting and magical nature of the North in his stunning collection of short stories called Moccasin Square Gardens. Richard, welcome to our show this morning. Musty Cho, David, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And, you know, um, I really, really, really enjoyed reading this book of short stories. I uh, want you. to thank you and your crew for sending this off to us so that I could have a gander and, and read through it. Um, it. It is a very interesting uh, group of short stories. But before we get there, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about some of the other things? You have uh, quite a large... Uh, uh, a selection of things that you have done uh, in terms of writing, uh, in terms of you've been involved with some television and uh, some of your books have been turned into uh, films. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's quite fascinating, the range of things. You've, you've gotten into children's books, into baby books. Uh, it's quite interesting, the, the range of things that you've done. David. Uh, so, well, I just want to say, Dante, Dante, thank you everybody for listening. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Camp. I'm from Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, and I'm the proud author of 23 books. And David, you're right. I work in all genres, whether it's comic books or baby books or kids books. I was a, a, a writer trainee with North of 60, the TV show, a long time ago. And you know, we're bringing it back. We're bringing back North of 60. And uh, I work in just about every medium. Uh, I was um, very lucky. One of my novels, The Lesser Blessed, was turned into a feature film with first-generation films out of Toronto and it's based on my first novel, and that stars Benjamin Bratt and Kiowa Gordon from Twilight. It was $2.2 million. It was shot in Sudbury, and I'm so grateful because we were able to launch the career of a young man in my community, Mr. Joel Nathan Evans, Mm. and we have a brand-new movie, David, called Three Feathers, and it's about restorative justice, and it's the only movie. It's out now. It just premiered at Dream Speakers last weekend, it's the only movie that's ever been shot in four different languages. It was it was shot in Bush Cree and Dene and South Slavey in English. And so you'll be able to watch the same movie in four different languages. And we're really proud of that because, as you know, the United Nations has said 2019 is the year to celebrate <laughs> Indigenous languages. And Moccasin Square Gardens, we just did the Ottawa premiere last night at the Writers' Festival. And I'm so grateful. I'm so proud of this collection. It was my first time to work with Barbara Pulling my editor of The Lesser Blessed. First time I worked with her in 23 years. Mm. These are my funniest stories. These are, uh, I'm really proud of, I mean, this was two years of my life, very focused. And I really feel with Indigenous literature, it is time to dance, it's time to sing, it's time to blush, it's time to giggle. And it's time to kind of poke fun at our leaders 
kind of poke fun at each other and most importantly poke fun at ourselves as indigenous people and as northerners well congratulations on all fronts for, for that and we look certainly look forward to seeing this uh, next new film that you've got coming out uh, that's wonderful in in so many languages and you're quite right it is uh, indigenous languages of the year so that's that's wonderful to hear as well um you know, when I when I uh, when I read through the things that you've done, and as you say, you've worked in all genres. Um, it's wonderful to see that, and and I don't think that's something that everyone can do, is it? Comfortably? Oh, I don't know. I I quit worrying about other people's careers and trajectories. <laughs> Everyone's doing so great. You know, yeah. you think about when when I started twenty three years ago, there was Alatuk Ipoli, there was you know Daniel David Moses, there was Thompson Highway, Tom. Thomas King, Lee Miracle, Ruby Slipperjack, Jeanette Armstrong, Beth Brandt, and those that was the canon. Mm. And, of course, uh, Maria Campbell and, of course, uh, Maria Anhart Baker, that was our canon. And, and now I've just finished judging three national contests. There are so many new Indigenous writers that I've never even heard of mm. that are just knocking us all on our high knees and they're coming out of, of communities and they're telling their stories their way. And I think that I was just speaking to a, a high school this morning here in Ottawa and I said, you know, we are witness to a time of incredible reclaiming in our indigenous literatures, in our movies, in our video games, in our comic books, in our names, in our prayers, in our recipes, in our songs, in our ceremonies. You know, we have survived a culture of extinguishment and, and now there's a great rising that's happening and I'm just so proud of everybody for doing such great work. Look at our bestseller list in in Canada right now. A lot of those titles are by indigenous authors. And that is wonderful to see. You're absolutely correct. And I, and I think you're also uh, correct about what you said about, it's just time to, to get on. It's time to, to just start telling these stories as just as much as you have with these short stories, you're telling them without, without sort of, beating the beating it over our heads that these are indigenous stories you know and and it's really nice to see there's just stories being told and and you take what you can and you take what you get out of it and um and it's really uh it was really fun to read the story like you said now you said that they're, they're your funniest stories i have to also say though they're they have underlying themes and they have underlying messages um and yeah. sometimes those messages are the more important ones that that are that you're trying to get across, I think, when you're telling these stories. That's right. Thank you. Well, in Aliens, the opening story, we talk about how aliens have, are, are witnessing the Earth and they're helping us. You'll notice that mm-hmm. it opens with the oceans bubbling gently mm-hmm. and scientists are saying that actually our oceans are getting clear, cleaner and clearer and the aliens are helping us and it's really up to us now to... To, to carry that forward and take care of this beautiful planet of ours. And, and in, in Man Babies, I'm making fun of all the 47-year-old <laughs> boys that are still living in their mom's basement. That's a lot of fun. That is a lot of fun. Yeah, yelling at their dads if their laundry's not done and supper's not on the table at right. 5.15. And yep. um, Super Indians, I'm making fun of, of leaders who have... <laughs> profited for decades without really doing anything for anyone but themselves. Yeah, and I must and, say, uh, you, haven't, you haven't held back on that either. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, I decided not to because we can't afford to right. anymore. Right. I think that if, if we have leaders that, that have money for bingos and, and hand games tournaments, that $75,000 gone in a weekend, that same money that could be put towards language revitalization and culture camps and, and restorative justice 
that's really where the money should be going. We have to stop with the quick band-aid solutions and really think long-term because so many of our languages are in trouble. And, and as leaders, I was saying the other day, it shouldn't be up to membership to be chasing leaders to do a culture camp or focus on getting free language classes for everybody. It should be up to the leaders to be chasing the families and saying, look, we've got five free lessons every week. There's food bring your babies, bring your kids, and we're all going to start together reclaiming our language. It doesn't matter where you're at. Everyone's welcome. We're in this together because I think we're all three knowledge keepers and three language speakers away from losing our languages in some of mm-hmm. our communities. And if, and if we keep, if they're the go-tos and they're the only go-tos, what happens when they cross over? Who are we going to have left you know, holding up our languages and welcoming new speakers in a good way. So we have to think bigger. Uh, we have to, to, you know, really start planning for what's going to happen with, with, the, with the environment. Uh, you know, conservation is key when it comes to resource management. And we're, again, we need to talk and we need to have some pretty courageous conversations about our conduct. And uh, it, I think Moxton Square Gardens is a fun collection. It's also about holding ourselves accountable and taking responsibility for our own futures. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, it, going going back to uh, to the Super Indians, it, it was also interesting to see how you you didn't just it, it, you didn't leave anybody out. I guess that's what I'm trying to say because you, you pointed out, you know, at one point in that story about how uh, family has influence and can help these leaders if you know. Uh, regardless of if it's right or wrong, uh, they can they can pull the family together and have the most weight to to get something put through or to to have something done a certain way. Yeah, thank yeah. you for saying that. You know, I was uh, David. I don't know how old you are. I'm 47, so I was raised. I'm a child of the 70s and the 80s, and it, to be in Fort Smith, we're on the 60th parallel, population 2,500. We're officially quadrilingual. So Bush Cree, mm. Chippewyan, French, and English are spoken at any given time. We're the Métis capital of the Northwest Territories. we got buffalo 40 miles one way. We have bison 40 miles the other way. We've got hooping cranes, sandhill cranes. We've got pelicans. We, we're, we're so blessed. We've got pickerel. Uh, we, we were raised in a time of Terminator, Predator, cartoons, Mad Magazine, Stephen King, S.E. Hinton, Judy Bloom, and comic books, and Star Wars, and I was raised and in E.T. And E.T., of, let's not forget and E.T. <laughs> yes, thank you for saying that. Well, e. that's only because you referenced that in one of the stories. It's great. I love that. Grandpa, E.T. Yeah. E. E. saves a relationship, that little and, movie with the, with the grandson and the grandfather. And what I love about that story is how, how Grandpa thinks, thinks of E.T. as a mushroom. That's classic. Yeah, a little mushroom. <laughs> a, little, a little boy with his friend, the mushroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, with Moxon Square Gardens, I really wanted to braid the beauty because pop culture binds us all. Like when I say for those about to rock by ACDC <laughs> or I talk about Iron Maiden or, or E.T. Or, mm. or, or WWF Wrestling, look at uh, the contract, the short story. Um, it's a WWF, the camel clutch that, that mm. binds a friendship together forever and wrecks two, two spines in the same process. Yeah. But I just wanted to, to fuse pop culture with northern culture and get the world laughing. And you I do think that. We've all tried, I think we've all tried the figure four leg lock. We've all tried to reverse it. We all had hockey stick nunchucks when we were kids. We all wanted to be ninjas. We all wanted mm-hmm. to be show kazugi. We all wanted to be hand solo and have someone say, I love you, and then do something dramatic and go, I know. We, we all wanted that. And some of us achieved those heights of glory. 
And uh, I just really wanted to honor the world and, and most importantly, just get everybody laughing and, and really enjoying it and celebrating it. I think that the collection has been beautifully done. Uh, Douglas and McIntyre, they've done a great job. My auntie did the cover, Tessa McIntosh. Mm. I got to work with Barbara Pulling as, as the editor and Cheryl Cohen. Um, Barbara was my editor with The Lesser Blessed, and she was the late and great Richard Wagamese's editor. She's mm. a champion maker, and, and Cheryl Cohen was the former books editor at the Globe and Mail. And this was a two-year process. It was a it was a journey, and it was all worth it. I'm I'm really proud of the collection. I'm really proud to read from it. I can't wait to. I think we're going to Seashelt next, and and there's going to be something in Edmonton and Calgary and Victoria. I'm ready to rock. Um, I I just can't. I love making people laugh. That that's what I've always loved. Well, you know, as you as you keep talking, of course, the title becomes more and more uh, apparent because uh, when I hear of Moccasin Square Gardens, that's exactly what I think of—an event or some kind of a WWF thing that's happening. And I hear the the cheers roaring in the background as the event's about to start. And um, yeah, now you. the other thing, though, that you you know, it, it, there's some great. The titles themselves are interesting, but when you there is a couple of stories in here that are not always funny. I mean, you 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 pull yeah. out some pretty heavy stuff and some pretty dark stuff. But I also want to say that I ha- I found it incredibly easy to read. I felt like I could see these things uh, uh, simply uh, just unfolding in my in my imagination as I was reading through. So you've done a wonderful job of of making it very. Uh, conversational in in most instances, uh, the way you bounce back and forth in 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 in, in realities to some extent, uh, but the the we to go war uh, and mm-hmm. one and two now that those two stories I could see becoming a, a film very easily. Of course, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, for those of you who don't know, we to go war. We have two stories in Moxon Square Gardens. One is called Lying in Bed Together. The other is called Summoners, and We To Go War is a narrative that I've been working on in a bunch of books. If you read Godless But Loyal to Heaven and Night Moves, and I think even in The Moon of Letting Go, this is a continuation, David, of, of a narrative where, where in the future the We To Go have been resurrected because they've expanded the tar sands, yes. and they've dug up some old bones that reanimate themselves, and it's terrifying. It's after a three-day war, and so I keep writing these short stories uh, that are warning us about something I was told a long time ago, that one of the last we to go in Canada uh, was killed uh, outside of the tar sands. And if they keep expanding it, they're going to dig up those bones. Mm-hmm. And nothing in the world can stop them when they come back. And what happens when they start calling each other? Very terrifying stuff. I love it. And I can't wait for you to see what we're going to take it, because we're actually working with a movie right now with Amanda Spotted Fawn in Vancouver in the mm-hmm. National Film Board called We To Go War. And She's a stop-motion puppeteer, and mm. it's going to be a 20-minute movie, and it's, it's all terrifying. And I love, I love really scary stories. I've always been a Stephen King junkie. Um, Hereditary on Netflix destroyed me. I think about it every single day. Mm. It's even ter- more terrifying than Begotten. I don't know if any of you have ever watched Begotten, but it just it's the childhood ender. It's, there's just no hope left. And yeah. So I wanted to get people laughing. I also wanted to just fuse people's souls with terror. Well, the, the terror, but that. the terror you're 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 showing through that is also pointing a finger back to our own our own ability to do something about this because you know it's talking about the environment and it's talking mm-hmm. about you know it's our own work that's doing this and we need to stop Absolutely. it on many fronts because it is going to it's going to wipe us out one way or the other basically. Um, yeah. So it's, remember the headlines? I think it was the headlines two days ago. I think in the Globe and Mail it was a quote that said. 
to expand the tar sands now would be like trying to resurrect Blockbuster in 2019. <laughs> and it's, it's just thoughtless mm. that we would, it's greed that's, that's doing this. And, you know, I give thanks when I, when I think of what the, the genuine fear we all have for our children and our grandchildren. I'm so grateful that we have that because many of us are transforming our lives. We're saying this is the last vehicle we ever buy that's that's gas next one will be electric next one will be a hybrid we're all recycling we're we're all doing our best i genuinely believe that mm. i genuinely i see it all the time my my boy already knows right his p's and q's and recycle 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 yep. and he's already aware what's happening globally he's going to be five this month and i'm grateful that global awareness is great and i'll tell you a quick story I was stranded in an airport, and there was a, a husband and wife from South Africa, and they said uh, from Cape Town, and they said, uh, "I said, how are things going there? I understand you had a drought." And they looked at each other. And they said, "Everywhere we go, everybody saw the same Facebook clip." <laughs> and here's what she said, and I want everyone to listen really carefully, please, because this is a story of hope. She said, "The dam that was in charge of our cleaning water, our, our drinking water, the clean water, in in Cape Town, it, there's a number one through ten that we can all see." It went down to, I think it was three. It may have even gone down to one because there was a, it was a, it was over a 100-year drought. Now, what Facebook didn't tell you is we had three months of rain. The dam is up to number six. We just saw it right before we were here. Now, here's what we did. She said it wasn't the police and it wasn't the politicians who started to police the water. It was the people. Mm. And Cape Town, we used to have gardens based on Victoria, England. Why on earth we did that for so long? We wasted so, I mean, we, we wasted oceans of water these, these past hundred years on maintaining these unrealistic gardens that were not indigenous. Mm. Since we've had, we have the water, we're still rationing. We, we've changed to perennials. Mm. We've changed how we work with cattle and how we produce food because of how close we came to a complete drought Mm. And and we had to do that because you know what you have when you've almost lost it. And when you haul your own water, you don't waste a drop. Yep. Yep. And I think that we're at that stage now where we're getting to all haul our own water, and it's a metaphor, it but is. we're starting to realize, you know, it's a crime now to waste. It's yes. a crime now to take for granted. It's a time, it's a crime now to, to let corporations do what they want to do without worry of recourse. We, yeah. We're holding each other accountable, and I think that's what Moccasin Square Gardens is, and, and most importantly, holding ourselves accountable. Well, I appreciate you saying all of that and sharing that story with us. That's wonderful to hear, and I appreciate that. Now, Richard, the other thing that you do with your stories, if we can just step aside from Moccasin Square Gardens for a second, you know, you take on some pretty serious topics in your writings as well. You've got a couple of books, mm-hmm. The Spirit and Blue Raven, that take on a couple of serious topics. Um, I w- I've been very lucky. I've been using comic books to deal with some pretty hard-hitting issues facing all of us. I have a comic. I just gave them away this morning to the high school. I gave away Path of the Warrior, and that's a comic book I have out with Steve Sanderson and the Healthy Aboriginal Network. It's on gang violence prevention. Mm-hmm. And as you know, uh, human trafficking is a billion-dollar industry globally. Uh, gang violence is on the rise. Gangs are recruiting our young people at a, at a younger age. They're using social media to do so. So I, we, we developed a comic book with the Healthy Aboriginal Network, and we gave 20,000 comics away for free all over British Columbia. 
to help educate youth. We have a comic on sexual health for youth. We gave 10,000 copies away all over the Northwest Territories. It was commissioned by the government of the Northwest Territories because the North is in an STI crisis. Uh, Alberta is in an STI crisis. Uh, did you know that you can get chlamydia of the eye? Did you know you can get gonorrhea of the throat? The new strain of chlamydia ate a hole through the roof of a woman's mouth in Edmonton. And, and we need to talk about consent and boundaries and respect and and so the comic book that we came out with is called Kiss Me Deadly it's with with uh, a beautiful artist Chris Octor who's Haida Stevens Cree with Pass of the Warrior and to give away 10,000 comics that were approved by the chief medical officer of the GNWT and 20 CHRs and and nurses right across the Northwest Territories to use comic books to deal with gang violence prevention and sexual health and, and Sorry Richard I have to cut you off right there because we are out of time we're going to run out of time okay, I want to no thank problem. you so much for coming on the show I hope we can do this again very soon Anytime Musty Cho have a wonderful day everybody I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Janet Lamb, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.